So, Ethan, I know uh, I know Graham likes little tiny cameras, uh, but I have a I have a question for both Graham and Ethan. Ethan, how big is too big? So, how how large a camera do you feel would be just too awkward and and uh, something that would put you off using it? I mean, that's that's maybe a trick question. I, th- I think it has to do with uh, what you're doing with it. I'm a super big fan of um, uh, Brendan Barry, who just made a shipping container camera, and then yeah. Ian Reuter and Heather Olikhaus, I think I'm saying her name right, um, oh. who have uh, you know van cameras. I'm I'm pretty into those. I, I think um, in certain situations, right, if you can control the light and have a you know a uh, shipping container crane, I think uh, the bigger the better. Well, that's that's fair enough. Let's say you have to carry it um, just using your, you know, your muscles, and your hands. <laughs> uh, my muscles are pretty shot. So, um, you know, I think I've had a couple of requests for an 8x10 uh, camera dactyl OG hand camera, which I will probably make um, reasonably soon. And, you know, I, I like shooting 8x10 on a tripod, but um, mostly studio work for that. I think, you know, Four by five speed graphic camera dactyl OG. It's probably my my upper limit for strength. I once uh, really hurt my back carrying around two Kiev 60s, a tripod, and a bunch of lenses all day. And I thought like, okay, this is a little ridiculous. Um, so but two, you know, so the so the upper limit is two uh, one one point five Kiev. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, often for me, it's, it's less like if I'm backpacking, right, it's less how big the camera is than like the whole system. How many how many lenses do I have bundled in socks under my uh, camping stove, you know? Right. So uh, it, so the question is kind of um, related to the format um, and it's also related to the weight that's that's interesting because there are, I, I have some SLRs I don't want to carry. Um, but then, you know, the, the OG, uh, is certainly light enough, uh, to take anywhere I want. The problem is with the OG is that I also have to carry a bunch of, um, a bunch of film holders. So that adds to it. Um, uh, I would like to tripod it more. So that adds to it, um, so, you know, I, I, I'm following I'm following along with the idea uh, and here's too big, I think, is a, is a little bit of a, uh, a distraction or even too small is a little bit of a distraction. I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I like cameras that will fit in my pocket. Yes. Um, so one of one of the absolute best cameras for that is uh or actually I'll, I'll i'll give you two that are pretty close to each other and that's the reality so subtle six by six and uh the terrapin oscar um both of those they're they're very very similar cameras in uh in focal length or or and i use the word focal in in quotes because it's a pinhole so it doesn't have uh an actual focus but um lens to or uh pinhole to film uh they're about the same they have about the the, they're very they can get very similar images 
Um, but they also fit in cargo pants, uh, just slide right in because they're they're not thick front to back. Yeah, so, so basically, you need bigger pockets. Right you now, I will. First jeans. That's right. Uh, I I would say that. Oh, I need the photographer's jeans. Gee, <laughs> if I only knew somebody who had photographer's jeans, that would be really, really good. Do you have any in my size? Um, what size are you? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably yes. That's the other part. Um, nobody asks a girl about her figure. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, so I, I really like things like um, the the casino built um, quadruplets, which are the um, uh, Minolta Hymatic 7S2 the Vivitar um, 35ES, the Konica Auto S3, and there was one in Germany, uh, that Capture brand in Germany that I can't think of, Review. It was a Review 400 SE, I think it is, Um, because those will fit in a cargo pocket, and they have super sharp lenses, and, um, you know, it'll... Nobody's going to tell the difference of a picture I take with that and pretty much any other 35 millimeter camera um, with a normal lens. So, so it, those are those are maybe maybe that's as big as I want a camera. Yeah, I think uh, that I already knew you like pocket size the best, yeah. and I think I think you should look harder at some of the small folding cameras because they really are pocket size too. Right. And uh, the, but folding cameras tend to be heavier. Mm, uh, not so, that much. Not not that, not really. If you get, I'm talking about the really small ones, the Voigtlanders. Yeah, they're not heavy. Okay. Yeah, I'll I'll have to look into those. And uh, well, because I have a, a Retina Kodak Retina. Um, that they're heavy. They're heavier. Super heavy. Yeah. Yeah, but but they they built them that way. Some of them are are not heavy at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But I had a feeling you might go bigger, Ethan, and that's interesting. Uh, it's it it is also interesting that you went right to backpack because that's a big part of it. Um, you, it's not so much hard how hard it is to hold something in your hand. That we can all handle a pretty big camera with a good strap and in your hands. It's more the other stuff in a bag hanging off you crooked and hurting your back that's really an issue for a lot of this. Uh, it's not so much the actual camera is it's the load of stuff that you end up dragging behind you. Um, that's the limiting factor. Um, yeah. So, so what's your, what's your size? What's your oh, upper? Yeah. So, I mean, I would probably answer all these, give all the same answers that you guys did, but I don't, I don't really have an upper limit. I just feel like you have to solve the problem of moving the thing around. And we're going to talk about that sure. later on. But um, I think I want to build a pretty big camera and just put wheels on it because <laughs> because I don't want to have to carry it. But that doesn't mean I don't want to use it. And that that's sort of where I'm going with a lot of this. I'm also thinking about building big cameras for taking photographs around water and just making them float so I don't have to carry them around, you know, so. I think that's the other way to approach it is to, is to just get, how do you get the load off? Um, and then you can go bigger and, uh, and you know, there's, there's gotta be better alternatives for some circumstances, 
than the tripod. You know, it's it's practical, but it's limited too. So I think I'd be interested in looking into more alternatives, um, maybe bicycle mounted, uh, that kind of thing. Sure, sure. Sandbags in my trunk uh, as an alternative to tripods, but those ultimately were heavier than tripods. Yeah. Well, someone suggested to me that I should look at a cargo bike, and I've always wanted an excuse <laughs> to, to to get into that kind of bicycle, and that that's a great idea. You know, like something like the old uh, classic Italian ice cream bike. You know, where oh, sure. you, you've got a big box on the front and. Uh, you're back in the back pushing the pedals. Uh, that could be really great. And uh, I'll take my little pocket camera and I'll come out and take a picture of you on your <laughs> on your photography bike. Uh, I think that, I think that there's something there's something to be said for that. And you know, uh, I live in a a car necessary part of the world. Um, uh, so I'm uh, I'm okay driving around and I can have, you know, sitting on the passenger seat, uh, five or six cameras. Uh, but when I leave, here's, this comes back to one of my rules. When I leave that car, I only carry one camera. And the reason for only carrying one camera is all about, um, the, it's it's all about not having to juggle, not having, you know, being having both hands strap. Ah, then you have to worry about two cameras on straps when, you know, you're climbing over rocks. Right. Um, so so, uh, you know, uh, it, it it size is not necessarily the only factor in that but it's it certainly it well okay so if i can put one camera in a pocket and the other camera on a strap uh maybe i'm okay with taking two mm-hmm. um you know so that, because that comes around to what i was saying which is in a lot of ways yeah. it's the, it's not so much the using the camera it's the it's the yeah. managing carrying it around that's the issue i think that you need to come up with a bomb pop camera uh, for your your good humor uh, camera bicycle. What the heck is that? Uh, what a is bomb a bomb pop? pop? Yeah, a bomb pop is a circular like popsicle, popsicle. in red, white, and blue. It looks like a missile. So edible it's camera. A rocket pop in in New York when I was a kid. Uh, oh, of course. Yeah. They had to have it wrong. Right. We didn't yeah. have those. Yeah. Oh, well, that's too bad for you. <laughs> too bad for you. Yeah. So so yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So what do you guys say we start the homemade camera podcast? Yeah, sure. Well, maybe uh, some of you noticed uh, that we had uh, we, we've had a third voice uh, several times on the show so far. Um, uh, you know, it's Ethan, uh, Ethan Moses from uh, Camerodactyl fame and Buttergrip fame and all that type. Um, so we decided Nick and I decided um, that it would be a good time to add a third voice to our show as a full partner um, full full member uh, of the show. So we asked Ethan, and he graciously 
uh, agreed uh, to be a uh, a new member of the show. And he has injected a lot of ideas into what we should be doing and um, and how to do them and uh, all that type of stuff. So um, so we should be. Uh, OK, so first of all, uh, Ethan, welcome to the show as a full partner. Yeah, hey, welcome. guys, thanks for having me on. I think, um, you know, when when you guys asked me, I had never wanted to be a podcaster podcast. <laughs> Um, I, I always used to say I wanted to be rich and not famous. And I used to say that I'm halfway there and now, uh, I'm none of the way there, but, um, one, it was the, <laughs> the most flattering offer I have ever had, right? It's, it's my favorite podcast and you guys have built something really great. And to ask me to, you know, participate regularly was, was really flattering and, um, you know, we talk via Skype and uh, Google Hangouts all the time anyway, and I figured oh, it would be really nice to have a uh, scheduled time uh, a couple of times a month that, that we all get to talk and talk about what we're working on and interested in. And so, um, yeah, I, I was uh, super flattered and I accepted. Here I am. <laughs> and let me all reassure right. you that you will not get either famous or wealthy um so you're safe <laughs> oh i'm i'm still hoping for wealth we have yeah. to figure out how to monetize this um and sell our audience to somebody but yeah well i'm we just gonna plug uh, photographer's genes about six times an episode yes. see off. that that's my point okay <laughs> okay <laughs> Okay, so uh, so what were some of the things that uh, that we were talking about doing? What, uh, one of the things uh, from the beginning, we had talked about having guests, um, but really the only guest that we had um, that we ever got around to having was Ethan. Um, so maybe any guest that we have will be a future host. Um, but well, um, I think but we we really ahead. need to start asking. Um, some other people as guests. We can't have Ethan as a guest anymore because you can't be both a guest and a host. I, I think uh, that would be impractical. Well, so, you could have a. He could be a guest host. I think we. This is too complicated. I think we need to. <laughs> we need to invite new people to uh, come on the show. And we've also changed our technology with, in a way that makes that much easier. So, I, I think uh, that's something we should do a lot more of. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so we're going to we're going to look at uh, um, bringing guests on. Um, Ethan, you were about to say something there. Yeah, I've been um, excited for more than a year now for you guys to have guests on. And, and now I'm excited to maybe talk to some of these people. Um, you know, I think one of the amazing things that this podcast has done is sort of not only inspire people to start making cameras, but but drum people out of the woodwork, you know, uh, who are building cameras all over the world, um, and sort of put them in, in focus, if you will. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to this worldwide internet community of, of camera builders and photographic supply builders and things like that. I, I think, um, I think it's going to be really great. I'm excited for it. Good. So, uh, real quickly, I just realized something, um, Ethan, um, uh, when we have had you on in the past, 
we have just generally talked about products that you're putting out and some other things as well. Um, but, uh, we, uh, Nick and I, if you go far enough back, um, we've given our, uh, bona fides, um, I, maybe it'd be really good for you to just go through a quick, uh, origin story and, um, uh, and how you got here and, um, and why anybody should take your advice for anything. <laughs> they should not. Um, <laughs> okay. So. Maybe we'll talk about some of this more in depth as as the show goes on. But um, I, uh, well, I talked a little bit about this. Where do I start? Um, in World War II, my grandpa was in the Navy, and he was a photographer on um, like on an aircraft carrier. And I think it was like the best time in his life. Uh, because it was the first time in his life, you know, after growing up in the Depression, that he could eat all he wanted. Um, uh-huh. He actually, he had Alzheimer's towards the end of his life and um, started losing a lot of things and just really kind of went back to the, the happiest place, which was in the Navy. I remember him waking me up by banging a pot in my ear uh, with a spoon at like six in the morning, like time to get up, we got to go to mess hall. Um which I think was really funny. Anyway, he um, got out of the Navy and started Eastern Studios in New York and shot uh, basically like product catalogs for toothbrushes and sewing equipment and dresses and all sorts of things. Uh, I still have some of his business cards. And so he was, you know, really into photography. Um, He did not go to college and put all of his uh, children and grandchildren through college, basically doing that. Um, And he shot with a Nikon F, which my uncle just gave to me. Um, My uncle Bill got into photography. And then on the other side, my dad was into photography. And, um, you know, so it was, I, I have always been around, you know, old film cameras and people developing film and, and that sort of thing. Um, I got really into it in high school. Um, I always thought of myself as like a like an outdoor woodsman, although I grew up in the Bronx. Um, my buddy Nikki and I thought of ourselves as, you know, avid outdoorsmen when we were about, I don't know, 10 to 13. And we like would buy outdoor equipment from like the sportsman's guide and then march around the Bronx because our overprotective mothers would never let us go on a camping trip. And uh, <laughs> when I was about... 13, my, my freshman year in high school, um, my family was going to go to the Grand Canyon, um, and I spent my life savings at that point, I think it was like $750 on a Nikon N60 at B&H, um, and some crappy Vivitar zoom lens, and I, I thought, like, this is going to be great, and, you know, I'm never going to go back to the Grand Canyon, I've probably been 10 times since I live out here now, but, um, I was really excited about it, less because I was into photography than I was into outdoors stuff, um, backpacking in particular. Um, and then a week or two before the summer, I broke my ankle, and uh, we postponed our trip, canceled it, and I was on crutches all summer. And my mom felt really bad for me. I was pretty, uh, you know, I wasn't bedridden, but I, I wasn't doing too much of anything. And it was hot outside, and. Uh, she bought me an enlarger, um, which I set up in our bathroom tub, 
Uh, actually, I put the enlarger on the toilet, and I put the trays in the tub, and I sat on the floor in a puddle of developer, shocking myself once in a while because the cords were in the puddle. Um, and sort of that summer, I, I got really into photography and, um, you know, developing pictures, and it's it's stuck. Um, that, that kind of has been like a lifetime passion for me. Um, fast forward maybe to college, uh, I was pretty into, you know, getting my hands on any sort of camera that I could. Um, and I could not afford an eight by 10 at the time. And so I built, um, an eight by 10 view camera on a sliding rail out of wood and basically anything you could build out of, you know, hand tools and, uh, find the materials at Lowe's or Home Depot. Um, that was the first camera I built. Um, I shot a bunch of paper negatives in this project with my friend Ryan and yeah, I've been building and tinkering um, ever since. Um, for work, I, I kind of build electromechanical things, uh, often for food packaging plants or, or anybody who needs some sort of uh, embedded systems or, or mechanical things. Um, I spent about almost a decade driving around the country buying and selling camera equipment. Um, so in 2000, 2003 to 2006, uh, professional photographers, I actually worked for this guy, David Beal, who shot a lot of tabletop stuff on a Sinar 4x5 on slides, jewels and things. Um, and it, around 2003 to 2006, people would have like their first digital job. And so they'd go out, you know, I remember David bought a D200 and we shot one job with it that needed to turn around that week and the job paid for the camera. And um, I think the entire next year we only shot digital and put the Sinar away just thinking, you know, okay, we'll have a film job tomorrow. And it really never came professionally for, for sort of product work. And so there were, you know, hundreds if not thousands of photographers around the country who had basically stuffed what was maybe $100,000 worth of film equipment when it was new in a basement somewhere. Um, and so I was able to drive around the country. I've been to 50 states now um, buying that equipment from professionals, um, fixing it and cleaning it and selling it to amateurs and enthusiasts, people like me who would have wanted a Hasselblad, you know, when we were in, in the 90s or the 2000s. But a Hasselblad back then was $5,000. And as a teenager, I was not going to buy one. And so, you know, I would buy like 10 Hasselblads from a portrait studio and then sell them one by one to people like me to shoot, you know, portraits and their own personal work. And so I got into that and camera repair. And um, about a year ago, I bought a 3D printer to use as a laser. Uh, hang on. Hang on one second. Let's go back to that. So you were kind of Robin Hood, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I you were cash, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So you were you were buying on the cheap from the rich and selling on the cheap to the poor. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was buying on the super cheap from the rich. And <laughs> after, after after going to 50 states, um, pretty much if you were a photographer in the United States and you had a studio in the late nineties or early two thousands, you have had a call from me at least once. Um, I used to just, you know, make a thousand phone calls, pick a route and then spend months on the road driving around, 
buying cameras in cash and shipping them back, much like what uh, like UFO does at Camera Rescue in Europe. Um, but you know, I never uh-huh. had to become famous for that. I just wanted to become well, rich. Neither. Okay. I'm really actually interested in that in in that aspect and and the business and we haven't talked about this before, but um, when did that dry up? What was the end of that? Um, because uh, here's here's my deal is uh, garage sales uh, um, ten years ago had cameras at them, and sure. now have you know they're they're gone or they're thrown away or. Or they're stashed away and nobody knows where they are, um, you know, and they're they're not even dug out for a garage sale. So when did that dry up? When, when did that? Well, so there are still cameras out there, but they needed to be in such a quantity that I could burn gas and hotels and food on the road um, mm-hmm. for my time. And so, you know, if I wasn't buying 10 to 100 cameras a day, you know, I'm kind of losing money. And so... Um, I was not the only person doing this. I learned this from uh, Giles Clement. Um, he knew uh-huh. that I was in a photo studio, and he was in Madison, where I lived at the time. And he had bought out a photo studio and said, "Hey, can you come help me shoot things on white while I, you know, edit the pictures and put them on eBay?" And uh, I did that for him for a couple of days in exchange for beer and just hanging out. He's a super cool guy. <laughs> And at that time, he was like, ah, this is drying out. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go be a photographer. And he is wildly more successful as a photographer now and a camera builder. And I hope we'll get to talk to him on the show. Uh, yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, towards the end of that, I was like, hey, Giles, you know, we work pretty well together. Do you want a partner? And he was like, ah, it's kind of like a one-man gig. And I'm kind of getting out of it. I think that was like the last major load that he did. And I said, well, do you want a competitor? And he's like, I can't tell you what to do, man. Good luck. And... um you know, so I, I was not the first to do it and certainly am not the last. Um, I know KEH has a buyer. Um, there's a couple buyers in California. Um, Columbus Camera, I think, is where Giles learned it from, and they did it. Um, let's see. Artie yeah. Durbin. I think, I, think, I think what uh, companies like KEH frequently do is just make the rounds of the remaining camera stores yeah. because camera yeah. stores will accumulate – People bring collections or, you know, their old cameras into camera stores and either trade them in or just try and sell them. And so the camera stores accumulate them, but they usually don't have a really effective Internet distribution. They may have some online presence, but they're not big. And so they'll build up and build up until they've got too many for their shelves. And then they'll just sell a big uh, batch of them to someone from a a store like KEH that is good at internet sales. Also, KEH would do like buying days at other camera stores. And what that people to do is go in, sell their old cameras to KEH when the camera stores had full inventory. And then they would use that money to buy new cameras at the camera store the same day. Some new digital piece that's now worth nothing, but um, was cool at the time. And and so, yeah, um, I was able to do that for many years. But, you know, once I'd traveled the country maybe twice, you know, either if you're a photographer who had a photo studio, you, one, didn't want to talk to me, two, had already sold me your cameras, or three, had shown me your cameras and they were, you know, were unwilling to part with them at a reasonable price that I could make money on. And so there was not much left that I could do in the volume that I needed to, to make it work. 
Um, and so what I started doing actually was buying out camera stores going out of business, um, which was pretty successful. I bought out uh, Kurt's Camera Corral here in Albuquerque. Um, I forget the name of one. I bought one out in Connecticut. Um, and then like my, my most fun and sort of torturous moving boxes experience was um, there's this photographer or photo store called Keeble and Shuckett. Um, I bought it from Terry Shuckett in um, Palo Alto or Mountain View, Palo Alto. It's right outside of uh, Stanford University, and they were sort of huge. Um, I still have some inventory from them sitting on eBay. But, um, yeah, when I was a kid, there were maybe 300-plus camera stores in New York City. Now there's less than that in the entire country. And so <clears throat> All right. it's very rare that I can buy a camera store out when they go out of biz. And for a while before I started, you know, doing kind of contract engineering work, I was buying and selling any store going out of business, which is how I wound up with all of these photographers' jeans. And uh, I have <laughs> maybe a van load of industrial spray paint guns and pressure pot and, you know, uh, spray paint equipment uh, in my backyard. And um, I bought out an Army-Navy store. And, yeah, I, I sort of became a retail liquidator for a while. Um, but I did not like that as much, right? Everything was just widgets. I was not... Uh, super yeah the things i was buying and selling um but yeah that, that was kind of and they get bulky i mean one advantage of photograph equipment is it doesn't take up that much space compared to i don't know photographer's jeans or uh, <laughs> sounds like you got too many paint pots too i do i do but i'm, I'm getting rid of them uh i wonder if you could make some of them into uh you know i don't know development tanks or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would be the world's most expensive development tanks. I have these like 10-gallon pressure pots that I've been selling for 600 bucks a piece, which is about half price. Wow. Their price. Um, but yeah, they, they're big. 10-gallon 10 10-gallon 10 steel tanks are not small, but they can live outside. So that's that's all right. Hmm. Anybody who wants to um, steal them from my backyard, you now. <laughs> you now know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Well, I, all right. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, how the last part of how I got here, which we probably talked about on the podcast, is um, I started, you know, building and programming machines and robots and things. And uh, a little more than a year ago now, I bought a 3D printer to use to etch PCBs, which I know we've talked about um, for a um, basically an Internet alarm for your fish tank and or ice cream freezer. And uh, I just had a 3D printer sitting on my desk. And, uh, yeah, I got curious and built that first uh, camera, which was like a field camera. And I put it on Kickstarter, and that's kind of how I met you guys. And, um, yeah, from there, I have bought a lot of 3D printers. I think I'm up to 12 or 13 right now, depending upon how you count broken printers. And, um, <laughs> yeah. It's Not at all. <laughs> really fun thing, both because, you know, I get to use uh, some engineering and design skills towards the things that I really like and use. And because I've met all of these people on the internet, you know, Albuquerque is a kind of small place out in the desert surrounded by just more desert. And um, while I used to know a lot of photographers to talk shop with in New York, um, you know, not not too many of them are out here, although I'm building a small community. Um, but yeah, the internet has been really interesting and 
I've met you guys and, and a lot of your listeners and other people on the internet who are, you know, building and making cameras or still shooting film. And, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I, how I got here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's the other question. How are you going to revolutionize us? Oh, um, well, so I don't want to revolutionize you entirely. Uh, this is my favorite podcast and my my number one reservation um, before even not wanting to get famous was I don't want to ruin your podcast. I love listening to it and, um, you know, it's it's great. And often I am not a big fan of too many people talking on a podcast. I think I could. Yeah corrupt your podcast and now you know i'm i'm getting my talking out of the way on this episode but i think you know it would be nice if i just shut up and let you guys do what you do uh however there's a bunch of things i would like to try that i've been you know poking at you uh for a year now um i think it's really great that that we might get some uh guests on to, to talk about their work um i'd like to try some video things uh, which maybe we'll talk about more later but you know the three of us have to do a lot of experimenting um i am forcing nick into using a bunch of google spreadsheets to keep track of um, <laughs> you know prospective guests and prospective uh show topics you know i was thinking about this and i got really scared that i was going to tank your podcast for about an hour or two um that I was not going to have very much to say, right? Every time I come on, it's about a new product that I've made or, or something that I'm working on. And like, that's a slow process. I can't, I can't produce something every two weeks. It's, it would not be a good thing. Yeah. And, neither can we. So that's yeah. part of the deal. So, and so I hope I, I will be a little bit helpful, you know, a couple times a year when I release a new product, we can talk about that, but, um, or when I have, you know, something that, that I'm, working on that's interesting as I'm working on it. But I think, um, yeah, I got, I got scared and I, I sort of used my, uh, gunner organization skills to, um, start this, uh, spreadsheet that we've got and come up with like a bunch of themes and topics and, and notes on those themes and topics. And, um, yeah, I think maybe we could do a couple sort of, uh, like history book review type of, episodes on uh, famous camera builders in history. Uh, Edward Muybridge, the inventor, arguably inventor of motion picture, is really interesting to me. I read a really good book about him. Um, I think maybe we can do a show about um, like patents and reading, reading patents and uh, electromechanical systems and um, maybe, uh, you know, for, for both practical use and hilarity. There's a lot of patents uh, online for things from major camera companies that they invented and patented and then never used. Um, uh, one comes to mind is like a uh, see-through mirror to put on the front of your Sony camera so that you can see yourself and take a self-portrait in 1993. Uh, nice. And maybe uh, we can do some... Um, you know, a, like I know the Sunny 16 does a bunch of sort of contest episodes where they take pictures with, um, crappy cameras or, or cheap cameras. And maybe we could do some 
here and there, although it's way more work where we build our own crappy cameras um, and maybe get some listeners to build their own uh, cameras and, and talk about that. Um, yeah, and I, I've got a couple different types of um, cameras that I would like to maybe get you guys to devote a show to. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in is the Afghan box cameras. That's basically a camera with a dark room in the back. Um, and I would love to build one one of those days, and maybe that's... I I actually have one. Um, it's made by Fuji. It's called an Instax. And... <laughs> No, it's it's yeah. not the same thing. But <laughs> but I tell you, the other day I was looking at uh, uh, that camera that you had uh, posted a picture of recently. Uh, that's it looks like half a cylinder, and I guess it's a, yeah, it's a pinhole camera, and it reminded me yep. of a developing tank. And uh-huh. you know, I have pictures in old books. We've talked about this before of cameras that had a a light tight hole in the top where you could pour in developer and develop the glass plate inside the camera. So that's an old idea. But it struck me that a really simple way to do it would be to put a pinhole on the side of a developing tank and then just wrap a piece of uh, print paper around the inside of it, you know, close it up in the dark and and have all you need is a watertight uh, shutter on the pinhole. Right. And, there, and there you've got an instant camera. You could just pour a monobath in there after you take your picture, you know, and uh, time it, pour the monobath back out, and there's your picture, instant. I, I think it would be... A really fun, quick, quick uh, experiment in making a homemade instant camera. I really love yeah. this idea, and I think we should do an episode in the future all about uh, homemade in- instant cameras, and maybe do a challenge around it um, to see what your listeners, our listeners, uh, and we can come up with uh, as instant cameras. I think that would be, you know, pretty, pretty simple, but also super fun. And yeah. Uh, and you've talked about the Afghan camera, which is this, basically the similar idea to what we're talking about, uh, the street Afghan street cameras. And I know Sende Halinch has okay. built, built a good one. So that's a whole yeah. other uh, thread. Okay, of, real, yeah. really quick. Uh, the Afghan camera is a box. And in that box, it's got a lens at one end and it has a negative holder inside the box, not like on the back or anything. It's got a negative holder inside the box. And then you have uh, gloves like you're working with like some sort of hazardous material uh, that you and can the, and put the hazardous, your hands in. The hazardous material is light. So light. Right. Right. So you put your hand in and you process it in the box right. and you come out with a with a positive so that you have a, essentially an instant picture you have a a picture that you can give to a client if you're shooting somebody on the street and mm. you're selling a street portrait you know um it, it it's what it was a very early take on the instant camera it's also so, very practical if you want to shoot paper negatives outdoors uh, instead of carrying all those you know, many, many uh, negative holders. If you just put a box of paper, of photographic paper inside the camera, then you can just you know reach in, pull one out of the box, stick it on the back of the camera, take a picture, develop it, and pull another sheet out. I mean, you can have a 50-shot camera, you know, or a 100-shot camera. Right. Yeah. Right. I think, I mean, the, the way they generally use them is they would shoot a paper negative, and then um, they had, like, a little stand that would come out of the front of the camera, they put the negative in front of the camera and re-photograph it to make a positive. 
Um, but I'm really interested in using one of these with a direct positive process or reversal process on paper. Uh, Don Frula on Instagram has done some really interesting work using uh, iron out uh, to reverse reverse process um, some paper negatives. And I, I would really love to build a camera around that process. I have a suggestion. It might be just as practical which is to carry uh, some basic face paint and you just paint the person's face in opposite uh, opposite their normal color and then take the picture. That's a little bit problematic these days. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Flintstones camera. Do you remember the Flintstones camera? There's a bird inside the camera that chisels the image onto a slate. I just referenced that the <laughs> other day talking to a friend about his uh, old scanner. Mm-hmm. Well, they did used to paint people's faces to photograph in the days of uh, cameras that couldn't uh, it didn't do well with red, for instance. Right. Um, There's a lot of green face paint in the early movies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In order to get the natural looking, uh, you know, positive when you are done. All right. So um, so that is. Uh, welcome aboard once again. And so that's our uh, our idea of um, of kind of the directions that we're going to go. Uh, we have a bunch of ideas, m- many more than we can uh, enumerate uh, quickly and and reasonably. So so we will be so look for um, some changes as we uh, as we move forward. Sounds good. And uh, while while you were talking about the idea of having challenges or contests, the one that popped into my head um, would be a very simple requirement and maybe give lots of time. But to make the the assignment would be simply to make a complete camera from scratch. So, you know, you would get to decide how complicated it it should be. Um, but this is something that we kind of toyed with, but we didn't make it open enough. We, we, we Our first yeah. version of this was we had to get everything out of the trash. Well, that that's OK, but it's more fun if you can use better, you know, better parts than you might have in your trash. And uh, I think that just having a very simple and open uh, challenge, but that's truly challenging, would be to make something completely from scratch. And it could just be a pinhole camera, but you could. I think working on whatever method of making shutters and apertures and all those sorts of things that you can come up with with the tools and equipment you have would be a very interesting thing. And it it, it could be, you know, instead of a contest, it could be like the zine that we're doing now. Um, uh, maybe there's a prize, maybe there isn't, but there would be a product or some kind of result at the end that people could share. Um, yeah, I think the prize is you win a homemade camera that you built yourself. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like finishing an Iron Man. Well, you could do, we could do, uh, yeah, right. There, we could do an exchange type of thing, too. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you could have fun with it. But I think the idea of making a complete camera from scratch, you know, maybe you're allowed to use parts, but let's say any moving parts have to be devised uh, by you yourself as opposed to using the typically I use complete lenses with built-in shutters you know most of my builds and I need to be pushed to try building more of the the parts from scratch and look at really old cameras that's where you you can you, you know find practical ways to do that
Okay, so um, I've been uh, I kind of went on a spree. I went on a little bit of a camera building spree, um, and I built three pinhole cameras um, about in the last two weeks, and two of them over this past weekend. Um, there, um, this is if you guys remember back, um, and this is uh, somewhat related to the camera dactyl OG. And the idea that I've been resisting four by five, um, I've been resisting sheet film because I knew I had to to buy a uh, new processor, you know, uh, new processing equipment because I didn't have any four by five processing equipment. And uh, I needed film holders and I needed this and I needed that. And Nick actually sent me a bunch of film holders and then I bought some up in Asheville um, about a month ago. And um, so now I have all of the so I, I eventually did go into the, you know, I did uh, succumb to the four by five bug. Uh, so now I am uh, I have all the accoutrement. So why not start building four by five cameras? So I uh, I wanted a four by five pinhole camera and um I wanted one that had a relatively normal field of view. I um, uh, maybe a little wide, uh, but a relatively normal field of view. So uh, I took a film holder out into my backyard and set up set up a table and and got out the uh, circular saw, uh, the table saw, and uh, you know my other equipment, and I. Um, went back and I got some wood that I had that was left over from um, uh, reflooring two of the rooms in my house. Uh, In fact, the office that I'm in has it. It's really nice hickory um, and it's kind of like the hand scraped. So it's not, you know, perfectly flat, Uh, but I had some left over and um, I didn't want to throw throw that you know, wood away. So it's engineered hardwood, you know, it's, it's essentially plywood. So I, um, uh, took out some of that and the width of one of those boards then dictated the length of the body. So the width of the board is, uh, I don't know. I didn't, uh, let's see. I was all doing it all in, uh, in proper metric it's uh four and three quarters wide in inches and for the vast majority of the world that comes out to uh just over 12 centimeters um so that is that became the depth of the camera uh because i didn't want to have to rip any of these boards i don't mind cutting them cross cutting them but i didn't want to rip the boards um so I uh, so I built a box and um, gave you know put in a little bit of a recess in the back where the film holder goes and um, created a shutter that's essentially a a piece of of uh, wood that swings out of the way. Self drilled the pinhole drilled the pinhole using the the micro drills that you can get off of Amazon. And the biggest one I have is three 
three tenths of a millimeter. And uh, so that gave me actually a relatively small hole. That should be about a five. That should be about half a millimeter hole for a camera this deep. So it has a very uh, it, it. I think my f-stop on this one is about um, 280, or maybe it's even. Yeah, I think it's 280 is the f-stop on that. So that's a really slow, long exposure uh, f-stop. Um, there are a couple of things that I did. I had seen, and this is actually kind of based on kind of the back of the uh, camera dactyl OG. I, uh, instead of clamping in or, or making, um, uh, you know, locking a locking mechanism for the back, uh, for the film holders, I instead just got these hair bands and, you know, I got a, a pack of eight or 10 hair bands at, uh, I don't know, Target or a, uh, pharmacy and, you know, for a couple bucks. And, uh, so I use these hair bands and the hair bands stretch around. They're like big, they're okay. So a hair band is a, is an elastic, um, it is a fabric colored, uh, covered elastic band. And so it doesn't, you know, grip your hair with the, with the rubber. Um, but it, uh, and I don't have any hair, so, you know, that's, uh, it doesn't, doesn't hurt my head at all. But, uh, but that really holds on the back quite well and it holds it, holds it securely in there. Um, I thought about two things. I was, as I was building this. Yeah, guys have any questions as I'm going? Uh, no. Am I talking I to myself? There no, we no, go. No, no, no. no <laughs> okay. I was just thinking um, <laughs> hair bands are great, but uh, you can just buy a hundred foot roll of the stuff for like five bucks. Right. Yeah. I, um, Every the, photographer should have it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's um, like elastic par parachute cord kind of stuff, right? Yeah. What do they call the stuff that you use? Um, I think I just look for elastic cord. It's, you oh, know, yeah. and some black nylon. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I had these on hand because I had used them on a previous project. So I just decided I was going to do that. Um, what I use to retard, to hold those bands is, uh, okay, if you think of the box, you have the front where the pinhole is. You have the back where the um, uh, where the film holder is, and it is a portrait uh, orientation as I do this. So think of this as it is taller than it is wide. Um, on the sides, what is you know what would be the sides in that orientation? Uh, I just I have these um, uh, uh, bolts, I guess. They're bolts that um, came in a kit and they've got hex heads. Um, but what I did, I didn't worry about uh, putting a nut on the inside. I just drilled the the wood to the right size and screwed in these these bolts. And they are essentially the knob that the that the hair bands attach to. And I thought about this. Excellent. So the, say it again. Like uh, Frankenstein's monster's neck. The, the yeah, stuff. right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Very much like that. Um, I don't know if they're for electricity or, or uh -huh. what the deal 
this, but you know, uh, but uh, the the first thing that I thought of is if I do that, okay. So if I drill in and I put two of these retarding devices, uh, two of these band holders, then if I turn this on its side so that it is a landscape, then um, it is it's not going to be balanced. It's not going to sit flat if I have it sitting on a flat surface because I have these two knobs on there. So on one side, I put two more knobs so that they so that it will sit perfectly level on one side. So it's like think of the four four rubber feet. They're not rubber. Uh, four feet on um you know uh i don't know the base of your television that type of thing so um so i i leveled those out so i have a, a couple of extra um uh of these of these little knobs um on either side of the bands so uh so anyway so uh, um that is these these boxes I mean, because you have to glue them up and um, uh, and wait for them to dry, I suppose if you had staples and a staple gun, you and what I mean by staples, uh, brads and a staple gun, uh, you know, if you had a pneumatic stapling device uh, that will take brads, you could probably build this um, in about an hour and a half. Um, but it took me two days because I was um you know i had to let it let the glue um set before i came back and sanded it off and and did all that type of stuff evened out the edges sanded it off i was going to paint it but then i thought well i made it out of this hickory let the hickory show um so anyway so the idea is that this is a nice little pinhole for four by five and and that worked that worked pretty well. And then I thought about a bunch of film that I have, which is uh, also sheet film. I have a bunch of two and a quarter by three and a quarter sheet film. And uh, so I decided I had uh, about a hundred sheets and I sent half of them to Nick because he had a project that used it. Um, and uh, and the, the other half of the film I, I kept and I thought, well, what the hell? Let's make a two and a quarter by three and a quarter sheet film uh, uh, pinhole camera. So I did that um, just uh, this past uh, weekend. The the four by five I did the weekend before. So so now I have two pinhole cameras that are made of wood. They're boxes essentially, so they're box cameras, but they're really simple and easy. And uh, there are multiple shots because I use film holders. So as many film holders as I can load, I can take them out and use. Um, so I've been playing around with those. And um, real simple, real basic, um, no frills. Uh, they look cameras. they look really good to me. And I think yeah. that I think sheet film is sort of often forgotten. Excellent method of film transport. <laughs> Right. You know, right. you don't have to struggle with counters and all that stuff. You just need yeah. a pencil, you know. And, now, you know. now, this is the other thing that I wanted to talk about. And then we'll talk about the um, uh, 
the Canamorph. Um, the uh, the uh, the thing that I wanted to talk about was now I I have I've had this this I, I mean I just talked about it this resistance to sheet film this resistance to four by five because I would have to then do all my you know get all my stuff um, uh, you know uh, uh, get all my developing stuff and right now I have a Stearman 445 which I think is a really nice de device but it's four sheets it's four shots and I've got about probably about 18 shots ready to be developed and so uh, the last time I developed film I I reloaded the 445 a couple of times. So I did about eight shots, but I still, I'm, I'm. You want to be able to do more at a time. I want to be able to do more at a time. Uh, I love what um, Jeffrey, who over at 20th Century Camera is doing. He's got a spiral uh, film developing holder that he's just announced. Um It'll hold six uh, sheets of four by five, and you can just drop it into a Patterson, right. a one liter Patterson tank. Yeah, uh, which is a three roll Patterson. So right. I went out, to, I went to get my Patterson tank, and then I look at it, I go, that's not a three roll. And then I looked at my Patterson tank, and I said, oh, that's a Yankee. Um, uh, so, yeah. so it was like, ah, oh, uh, now I gotta get both. Uh, you know, uh, so I kind of frustrated myself a little bit um uh on that uh so here's here's my little bit of insight into the world and here my insight into the world is that roll film is a hell of a great invention oh sure. so uh thank you george eastman and the other people who are working on it along alongside him who's but, you know if you if you have a camera that will take a standard film holder then you can stick a roll film back on it no right. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I, I understand that. Um, but then it's not four by five. Right. You know. Oh, yeah. So what I want is I think it is. Is it one oh one film? Um, maybe it's one oh nine film. I anyway. Oh, you want some giant um, roll film. I want some four by five roll film. Uh, that's what I really want. And I might have to make it myself. Now, I was just uh, thinking, like, we've talked about this before, but what about the idea of essentially a belt that you load with four by five sheets that you can then wind through a camera, but then you'd also could create a giant jumbo developing tank that you could put that same belt in. Yeah. So, so that you could basically just load four by five sheets, you know, that you just buy by the box into your belt and then run it through your own homemade system to to shoot it and process it i would love to see a sketch on that yeah <laughs> uh yeah i'm not really sure uh what yeah but anyway i'd love to see a sketch on that okay yeah so so yeah and then well and then ethan you'll build it and i'll just enjoy it um <laughs> i love i love that dynamic um the uh, so so anyway, um, uh, I have thought of, you know, like taping together four by five and then um, and then rolling it onto a spool. Yeah, I figured you'd say things, that. That's why I brought up this belt idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that's really nice about four by five is that it shoots almost the almost edge to edge. 
And in fact, there are places on it down where the film holder has that little cutout um, where you are shooting edge to edge. You're shooting the entire film. And we really don't do that anywhere else. Um, You know, I guess 120 film, we get pretty close. Um, But yeah, so... So anyway, I've, I have uh, I have another idea. So I have a whole yeah. bunch of those old stainless steel frames that were for dip development of four by five sheet film. Uh-huh. They're pretty, pretty easy to come up with. I have a box full of them. And so they're fairly small and compact and they're designed to, to, you know, take one sheet of film and dip it into a simple rectangular tank to develop. Uh, and you and the idea is you put a whole bunch of them in one tank to develop all at once. So that, you uh-huh. know, that system. Have you seen those? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you could all you could design a camera that took those and allowed you to flip them one at a time in front of the lens. And then when you unloaded it, you could drop them straight into a tank and develop them. So you wouldn't have to keep unloading and reloading the, the film. You would shoot it already in the developing frame. And then for a development tank, you just need a, you know, a big rectangular tank. You can do as many as you as your tank can take uh, at one time. So it was, okay. a, it was an old way to develop. You can develop one, two, three, you know, to up to infinity uh, sheets of film at once without needing a special. Um, uh-huh. You need a dark room, you, you know, but you don't yeah. need a, a special tank or anything. Right. Right. So, um, OK, so the other camera that I've been working on is um, I. I <sighs> was throwing out um, a uh, an oatmeal box and I was thinking about you know, um, anamorphic cameras and um, I, I you know I thought hey I should keep this you know it's it's rolled cardboard it's uh, it's opaque I just have to make caps I have to figure out how to hold the film exactly where I want it and um, you know, and I can make a, an anamorphic camera. And then I started thinking about, well, a cylinder is an easy thing to print on a 3D printer. So why don't I just print that as a cylinder and I can print the film holders inside? And then the next thing that I was thinking is, well, we don't actually need the whole cylinder. Um, you know, some anamorphic cameras actually do um, shoot onto a fully circular um, recording medium, uh, paper usually at that point. Um, but I was thinking, you know, generally it's usually just half. Uh, it's just half of the image, right? Or it's just half of the cylinder that needs to be used. So if I create a camera, um, you know, essentially extrude half of a cylinder and um and then uh, and and you know essentially uh on the uh, uh you know cut it in half on so that i have a semicircle and a flat surface um then i could actually fairly easily put a pinhole on the front and have a curved plane um pinhole image and a pinhole on the lid, so I get an anamorphic uh, image. And uh, so it's really two cameras in one. So uh, it took me a couple of prints because 
the first one I made completely the wrong size. Um, uh, my math was wrong. Uh, oh, here's what the deal was is uh, I made it so it had a circumference of 10. So uh, of 10 uh, inches so that um, half of it is five, right? For four by five. And then I extruded it five inches up as if I had five by five film. So then the second time I had to uh, extrude it. So it was only four, um, four inches uh, top to bottom. And then um, I had forgotten to move that front hole. So the third time's the charm. Um, I, I So I have a hole in the lid for um, anamorphic. And I have a hole on the front for curved plane pinhole. And it's a little tiny thing. It's uh, it's about palm size. Let me say that. It's about palm size. I'm trying to think. It's uh, it's wider than a beer can. Um, it, actually, it's uh, I'll put it this way. It's about half of a Foster's can. You know, the big Foster's oil cans. So it is half as high and it is half of the cylinder that a Foster's can comes in. So it's pretty, pretty small. Now, the only problem is it's a one shot. Uh, I don't have a film holder, uh, although for a lot of people, you know, I mean, I'm shooting four by five, right? A one shot's not that, not that difficult, um, not that big of a, uh, of a problem. So um, that's, that's my, that's my latest. That's, that's the, uh, uh, the two things. Now I have, done test shots i have i've shot a few successful a couple of successful shots with the four by five box i have shot um a uh, two sheets of film holder in the th two and a quarter by three and a quarter but i haven't developed it yet um i shot some paper negatives in the four by five box and a couple of them were were like uh completely blasted out like i had my exposure like um my paper i rated rated at iso one and i think it's much actually much higher it's much faster it's um more like uh i don't know uh iso four or or eight um so uh so i have to go back there and, and the same thing uh i did a paper negative with the canamorph and I was able to pull a bit of an image, and it's on my Instagram. So if you go to Graham Homemade Camera, Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, uh, Homemade Camera uh, on Instagram, you can see um, both of the, uh, actually all three of the cameras I just discussed, and you can see the sample of the uh, of the Canamorph. And uh, so I'm going to have to do a little bit more, obviously, uh, testing and experimentation. Um uh, but but yeah, those are the those are the devices. Those are the things. I think I think it's pretty cool that you got there in three shots. It usually takes me, you know, uh, dozens. I remember um, I just threw out while I was moving uh, a whole box of uh, like no good prototypes from your um, twenty four squared pinhole. Um, oh yeah generally like the way i work is i will make a cad model print it out realize that uh nothing fits 
um, this panoramic camera I'm working on, it's got, you know, five pages of notes of dimensional changes that I needed to make after the first one. And then the second one came out and then it's got like a page and a half of notes of dimensional changes. And by the third, things were fitting, but still nothing was right. I, I usually go to like, you know, seven to ten before I can <laughs> get, get yeah. it to work. Oh, well, part of the deal is um, this is pretty simple, but um, when it printed, it printed a layer. Um, it, pr it, it, it essentially off printed a layer. So mm -hmm. I actually had a circular light leak on, um, which I've covered up with um, the scotch uh, uh, opaque paper tape. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, you know, so. Uh, there, there are, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a perfect print this last time, but, but I think that this is going to work. Um, I may, you know, uh, part of the deal is I, I may be getting fogging, so I may want to thicken the walls. I made them, uh, two millimeters thick uh -huh. and I may just want to thicken the walls just to, you know, get a little bit secure. Something uh, you try is, um, so not only can you thicken the walls, you can thicken the shell in the right. slicer. And right. so often, instead of making it bigger, you just add more plastic internally um, to the the face of the thing. And that'll, so, it's, so it's more dense. Exactly. Right. Or more dense towards the outer and inner surfaces. Yeah. Well, I use... Uh... I use a flashlight and I'm getting nothing through it. And that's usually, you know, put a flashlight you, you, right up in the, the plastic. in the incomplete darkness. Right. Yeah. 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 I, uh, yeah. You can. Yeah. Incomplete darkness. Uh, I'm doing it right here, sitting in front of my computer and I see nothing. Um, yeah. I don't know. There's probably some threshold, though, where you've still fogged the film, but your eye isn't going to pick it up. I mean, you know, right. if you happen to Thank hit right in that. Yeah. Right. Uh, I also might be letting light in the tripod socket that's on on the base. Ah, yeah. Uh, so so that could be a uh, that could be a source. So so I should just put something. I should put it on a tripod, and that should take care of it, right? I would yeah. really like to see you test this not only for light leaks but for liquid leaks, and uh, you know, go go along with Nick's idea of making this into a. Um, not only a, a pinhole camera, but also a developing tank. Mm -hmm. Sure, cool. sure. Um, uh, I would have to figure out a uh, a light trap uh, liquid filling lid. So yeah, well, so you already have one. If you ha you could just cut the top off a developing tank and glue it on this camera. <laughs> oh come on. Man. <laughs> You know, I'm a, I can do better than that. I'm a Frankenstein yeah. builder. See, this sums it all up. So a Frankenstein builder just goes out and finds some corpses and assembles a new right. uh, a new creature. But what Ethan's doing is he's trying to operate more like an animal breeder. So each time he produces a new design, he's got to build the whole new animal from scratch. And, you know, you end up with a lot of uh, funny looking sheep before you get the right one. That's uh, Island of Dr. Moreau. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm, my goal is always reproducibility um, so I can make literally tens of dollars selling things on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, so th right. 
there there's something to be said for both uh, both approaches. So if you make a camera where you can modify something, you know, its length or some de some part of it, you can then tinker with it until it works. But there's also something to be said for stubbornly starting over again until you've got something that will work, you know. And and that that has to do with printing. And printing is more like natural biological reproduction than than construction. You know, it's uh -huh. you put in the genetic code and it spits out a, a copy, you know, of whatever it is you want to make. And that that is, you know, what they say is when the printers can print copies of themselves, then they'll start they'll start to take over the planet. Yeah. I have a printer in the shed right now printing a copy of itself. <laughs> All right. Uh, I also have that almost a 10 pound bag of uh, discarded homunculus bodies. And, and this yeah. is the food you feed it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, we could grind it up and then feed it back into the machine and then end up with mad camera disease because right, these are right. not not um, uh, meat eating uh, or self eating. Yeah. OK. Anyway. Well, I heard that I heard <laughs> at some point recently that the military was working on uh, independent robotic, uh, you know, whatever weapons that that could consume biological material and use that as a power source. And so, you know, okay. they're basically talking about robo zombies and uh, it's, it's not really a pretty thought at all. Or cars and generators, right? I mean, oil is ultimately a biological uh, material that is consumed for energy. Yeah, it is, but you got to wait oh. so long. That's you know, true. I mean, if you just go right to the, eat the dinosaur and then you're, you know, you speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh -oh. Okay. We're, so we're talking about eating dinosaurs. This is starting to uh, come all the way full circle. That's right. That's right. So, so anyway, uh, so that's what I've been doing. Well, those, those look really good to me. I like, I love a box camera. I like the simplicity of it. And, you know, I mean, it's one of those things like the, the box is the form that the basics of, of a camera take, you know, you've got flat surface or, it doesn't have to be flat, but commonly a flat right. surface to receive the light and make form the image and, and a parallel opposite surface to hold your your lens or uh, light modifier. And it just keeping it that simple is, is sort of, I don't know, it's refreshing. I like it. Yeah, it's easy to do. And I, I like seeing you working with wood again, uh, too. Uh -huh. um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Out, out in the yard as opposed to printing all my ideas. And, so. and this 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 conversation right now has made me think of something else, which is we're all talking about different ways of making stuff. And we talked earlier about a challenge. And another really fun project would be to do team builds where several people made their specialty. So, you know, if someone had figured out a good way to make a film holder and someone else had some kind of lens idea and someone else had figured out a shutter, then you would each member of the team would make, say, five copies of their part and send them out. And once everyone had received all their parts, you'd have a kit and you'd put it together and have a camera. Ah, um, that's an idea. It would be a fun, a fun way to make multiples. Um, and you know, with, we'd, it would sort of, the design of the camera would sort of depend on what the different people were capable of making, but that would be a lot. Right. Right. No, I'm with you on that.
Yeah. Uh, so I was planning to take the homunculus to the county fair, however, and I had it all packed up and it was fun figuring out exactly how I was going to manage the couple of lenses and film holders and so forth. But then I had too much work to do. I'm still buried with just too many things going on. So another couple of weeks before I can really have some free time. Um, and I had to stay in and do paperwork. But um, at least I got to think about it. And I have still got another topic to talk about, which is that I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but I stumbled on a bunch of really interesting stuff being sold off from someone's collection. And one of the things I found was a... I've been looking for a bigger lens to shoot, um, so 8x10 and so forth. And someone gave me a bunch of 8x10 films, so now I'm really encouraged to try and do some larger size photographs. But I didn't really have – I have a lens that almost covers 8x10, but I didn't really have anything for big big pictures. Build a pinhole box. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I just – for some reason, I just don't connect well with pinhole. It, I'm a, I like lenses. I like glass. Anyway – I, I found this monstrous lens, three and a half pounds of glass, for an old process camera. And it was very uh -huh. expensive um, by a fluke. I maybe just was lucky. But it's an, a beautiful Nikkor lens, and it will project an image circle that's 40 inches across at infinity, focused on infinity. So that's really big. Now I can start looking at using many sheets of paper or big sheets of paper or many sheets of film or whatever you could make a, a colossally huge negative with a, with a lens like that and uh that means needing a really large camera that's impractical to carry around um but what immediately occurs to me and i've thought about this before is making a wheelbarrow camera so making a big box and putting wheels on it so that you can roll it to where you know and point it and uh, take pictures that way and this thing is, I mean, with a 40-inch image circle, I could actually get inside it to develop the print, but I don't know if I want to go that far. But. So so um, are, are you thinking about doing something like uh, Heather Uklas, uh does with, um, oh, what is it, My uh, Little Miss Sunshine? Isn't that her van? Yeah, so uh, no, this is in between. So And, and I okay. think that the suggestion of, of connecting it to a... a um, Someone suggested to me that it should be a cargo bike. I think that's probably the best version. But I like a wheelbarrow for being uh, maneuverable. So if, if you say you want to roll around taking some landscape photos or even portraits, um, having something that is easy to move and point makes a lot of sense. And and also, I mean, I, if I make this sort of wheelbarrow chassis, there's a lot of advantages. Like all the the complaints about carrying out a lot of film holders and things like that go away if you have a big enough camera you can just put everything inside the camera you could have a whole box of paper in there and you know you don't need to uh you don't need to have separate things that you carry it all could be just pouches and pockets and uh, and uh, drawers and things right in the camera itself so and it could be its own dark room as well so it's it's an appealing idea for a sort of all-purpose outdoor uh, photographic tool and and it doesn't always have to shoot giant things it, but once you start getting above four by five you pretty much need support and so you might as well make it portable as well so tell us about how you're going to move it around well so i really am literally thinking wheelbarrow so i'm going to pick up the handles and push um at least the first version and more complicated version could have a bicycle attached and so forth but um, so uh but you're going to have to get it 
to where you're going, right? Well, I have a I have a pickup truck. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So you're you would load it in the back of the pickup truck and um uh and go from uh and and then unload it at say the county fair. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And- yeah, and and I'm picturing something fairly lightweight, relatively elegant, but I'd, I'm sure I would use some steel and and uh, maybe bicycle wheels. Um, probably a, a, a modular box idea, so that you don't have to have a huge box all the time. So if you're if you're shooting eight by ten, you could have a smaller. Um, but the idea that the whole thing could be just trundled along and everything would be in inside it, you know, and you don't need a, any kind of backpack or camera bag or any of that there's a freedom in that i mean it lightens things yeah, up because a camera I, bag when you have a wheelbarrow exactly <laughs> and and there that's we part go. of the hassle i have with big with big cameras it's not so much I, i'm i dislike using them it's just lugging them around in the woods and you know banging them into trees and they're just awkward and this would solve a lot of that okay so um uh, I'm going to suggest you guys go to, and you may not be able to, to fully appreciate this. Go to cameracarma.com. This is Heather Oklaus's, um, uh website. And this is going to be completely off topic. I'm just letting you know, completely off topic. Um, so if you go to the, to the home, it shows uh, a picture of a van, Little Miss Sunshine. But uh, are you guys able to get there yet? Oh, yeah. Go- I've been all over this website. Okay, so go to New Work, and it's um, uh, she's doing some 3D stuff that is super interesting in that uh, it looks to me like it is not taken with a 3D camera, but it is done artificially. Uh, so you're getting some different planes. I see different, and different I see, objects. I see. Um different color outlines of a a photographic image. It looks like a black and white photographic image with a blue and red, a blue shadow and a red shadow that are out of register. So that I suppose if you looked at it with 3d glasses, they would, your two different eyes would recombine them into a 3d image. Yeah. So I went and um, got my um, 3d glasses, my red, blue 3d glasses. I used to, uh, to spend a lot of time in uh, teaching this to my students uh, how to do these. And these are all done as if, okay, so each one of these planes in this uh, work that she's doing um, is stands out from the other planes, okay? But it's almost like everything is cut paper or a, like a pop-up um card it looks like something you could do in photoshop or yeah 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 yeah. and it's just really compelling work i actually really it, like them without the, the glasses i don't have a pair of the glasses i'm looking at these images right with regular eyes and i'm not trying to cross my eyes or anything and i actually right. just really like because she's only doing the colored shadow on some portions of the image so it's right if the finished result would be a flat black and white image with some 3d objects somehow bursting out of it and that looks really interesting yes absolutely absolutely uh and that's exactly the effect that that um that we're getting on this so uh highly recommend i'm sorry that was way off topic 
Um, but oh, it's the uh, kind of thing you could like do with game. a wheelbarrow sized camera, though. <laughs> I'm, I yeah. am really into this, and I think we should uh, we should do an entire show on stereography. Um, I've yeah, absolutely. Stereo cameras. I have one in the prototyping stage. My only digital camera prototype right now, and um, I have a whole section on my very old uh, personal website that's all about uh, 3D pictures. I also love anaglyphs. I think they're really fun. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So what's the difference so, between an anaglyph and, and not any other kind of stereography? Okay, um, well, the, you can put side-by-side -side images, um, and then you have to cross your eyes or let your eyes relax and go straight. So two, separate, two, Im two separate images. Yeah, that are side-by-side, -side, like the old uh, stereopticon. And is that what an um, anaglyph is, or is that the traditional? No. The anaglyph is the red, red blue. I see. Well, it's actually any any two color um, overlay. Two color okay. overlay, as opposed to having two separate images that you look with a divided viewer. Correct, and it works just like you remember those old serial decoders where you would see, um, you know, they would print some text in blue and then they would put a red pattern over it, and if you look through a red filter. Um, everything that's red just sort of looks white through the red filter and you uh -huh. can see what's blue because that looks black through the red filter, much like using, you know, black and white contrast filters on your camera. Um, and so the red eye does not see, or the, the eye looking through the red glass uh, does not see the red image and the blue image looks black and vice versa for the, the blue. So you're seeing two different images um, in each eye. One. So you're using the color, uh, you're using wavelength to separate the images instead of an artificial divider down your nose, right? Right. right. There's a lot of other ways that people do it, either with cross polarization right. or, um, yeah. I've, I, I, I've done a lot of these, and uh, Photoshop will allow you to do um, the anaglyph or, or uh, set up uh, um, some... Uh, the side-by-side -side versions, but yeah, yeah, let's do a show on it. Let's let's talk about that. Let's maybe see if we can get Heather on. I think that uh, that'd be great. That, that it would be really interesting um, to get her on about you know all the work that she um, that she's done. Yeah, I'd really like to hear about that van some more. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, okay. Um, Sorry, uh, Nick, we interrupted you. So No, you didn't. Uh, I was pretty much done. I, I have uh, sketches and I want to make it this large wheelbarrow camera and it could uh -huh. it could take many different forms, but I think the chassis could be the same for a lot of different uh, builds. So it's worth yeah. building. Okay. And it's on a okay. scale that where I can use my normal skills and tools fabricating steel, you know. If, yeah, you're, if yeah. you're going to make a steel camera, you should put wheels on it. One of the things that you you might want to think of, and this is a, a pre-thinking, um, and that is uh, maybe take some time for uh, to really think of a suspension that will allow it to float in a way that um, it doesn't um, uh, rattle everything. You know, uh, think about a bike going across the ground. Mm -hmm. It would be very easy to knock stuff out of alignment. So I think your suspension might be a big factor in this. 
I don't think my suspension will be adequate. I think I just have to make everything really rattle resistant and sturdy. Or maybe I could ship you a couple hundred pounds of leaf springs for a Jeep. Well, I have some uh, leaf springs, but I'm not sure that Jeep leaf springs are going to be the right <laughs> the right amount of springiness for a wheelbarrow. So. No. What you no, know no. is... I think you're right. A suspension's a good idea, but I wouldn't go yeah. much farther than a traditional, like a British pram, perambulator suspension. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. You know, so yeah. a rigid, a rigid just... barrow and then hang the, the camera itself from some stretchy things so that, yeah. They don't. I was going to su suggest a Citroen uh, 2CV. Yeah, there you go. Uh, that'd be a great Very camp. bouncy, very bouncy, camp. but very soft. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, that's pretty so, much how the Ford pickup works too, actually. Oh, well, you know, you can get shocks for that thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're squishy. You probably they're have squishy. some tools. Yeah. And and, and they, a lot of the suspension is really just the coil springs in the big bench seat. Um, yeah. Um, what's uh, Uber Large? There we go. Uh, I'm sorry. I was just put making notes for future episode, and uh, Little Miss Sunshine would be Uber Large format, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Uh, not very large format or anything. Uh, that's Uber Large. Yeah, I think Ethan mentioned recently to us that somebody has mathematically invented a single a single lens, a singlet, so there's just one element that has absolutely no distortion. And I think what you're talking about is more than one kind of distortion, but I'm not really sure. Uh, but the, the catch is that these lenses, what, they can't be directly made by traditional polishing of glass. They need to be made in some more sophisticated way that is still being perfected. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, let's see. I wanted to get this guy's name right. I was pulling up the... Well, I think what you told to me before was that it would get rid of... Dis it was a single lens, a uh, singlet that would have no distortion. And then people have used singlets in cameras. I have some really cheap uh, tourist cameras from the, you know back in the day that had what well, what is basically a meniscus lens it's just a magnifying glass um, and it works but you have various kinds of distortion and especially uh, like color fringing and that sort of thing um, which is why more complex lenses were developed to get rid of those uh, types of distortion and I'm I'm sure there's some perspective distortion and optical distortion with a singlet generally um, so I'm curious to know how many kinds of distortion this this new design would be free of. Interesting. Um, I think I'm not sure if it gets rid of chromatic aberration, but I think it, it gets rid of um, all sorts of like uh, uh, pin cushion and uh, barrel distortion. Right, right. As that makes sense. The corners is really what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was this guy, uh, Rafael Gonzalez Acuna, who's a Mexican mathematician, solved it. There's some, uh, you know, Petapixel articles 
floating around the internet. Um, I actually read his white paper, which required me to stop and uh, Wikipedia a lot of mathematical terms. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's a wacky shape. Um, it makes sense to me as something that's, that's um, really interesting in the realm of 3D printing. So Formlabs, uh, which builds a, a lot of SLA printers, um, did a white paper about 3D printing lenses. And they're not quite there yet, but um, they must have put a whole lot of time and energy into you know, just testing different ways that they might manufacture lenses out of resin prints. Um, and they got some interesting and, I would say, uh, encouraging results, although they're not there yet. Um, but I think as resin printed or resin cast lenses, uh, that manufacturing technology improves. And also with, um, so uh, Gonzalez Acuna actually published the, um, the program, I think it's in MATLAB or something, it's, um, the algorithm is now public for creating a distortion-free singlet. Um, we may someday just plug that algorithm into, you know, a math-based CAD uh, and come up with a lens that we could print um, or print a master and then, you know, cast out of an optical resin for things like, um, oh, fiber optic joints often have this very super clear optical resin, which is like an epoxy that we might cast into actual lenses. And I think, you know, while it's not there yet um, in the last year, but between this, uh, this problem being solved and Formlabs doing some work on um, 3D printing lenses, we're sort of approaching from both sides the ability to manufacture um, glass element or, or resin elements, uh, good lens elements at home. So I'm pretty excited about that. I've, I've got my, you know, um, Google alerts out and I'm reading about it. I think it's a good long time before I will spend a lot of time prototyping these things myself. I think I'll let um, other people do the heavy lifting in terms of um, science and then I might apply a little bit of engineering to it when when it's uh yeah more more consumer uh building friendly if you will one of the things um about lenses is if if you think about a camera okay a box uh, a light type box is easy um film transport film transport that's reliable and accurate is hard uh a shutter is super hard and a lens is impossible so the so well, i think the, i think i think that's probably exaggerating a little um but those yes, that's absolutely. about the order of dip order of difficulty sounds right yeah right right yeah so so the 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 more we can get into that lens end um then uh the better off we're gonna you know gonna be um the better chance we have of making uh, of of not relying on existing stock for our future endeavors. So I would say that lenses are not impossible so much as they are um, one simple process over and over for a ridiculous amount of time. Right. So okay. So the I, grinding. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. I have some friends who make telescopes, but they might spend months grinding a single element or polishing a single element or you know, grinding right. or polishing. And it's something that I've been interested in. And certainly um, I have the ability to throw together like a grinding and polishing rig, but um, it's not economical at this point to do it. And, and you know, so it's really, um, there's some really good CAD software. ZMAX is, is a good one for ray tracing and the optical design. Um, but, you know, while I can design anything in CAD, the ability to manufacture it is hugely difficult. Um, right. Less difficult if I can manufacture it out of plastic. And so, you know, I, I don't think the theory, I mean, it's certainly complicated, right? But the theory behind lenses is not um, nearly as hard as the manufacturing process. I'm, I'm, right. um, I'm hopeful that, that um, those things will get a little bit easier in time. So and, th that, that, oh, rem oh. okay, go on. Oh, I, I was going to say, all we're trying, all, I, I would consider it successful if we got to the point of, um, you know, plastic toy camera, uh, sure. meniscus, um, you know, if we could print though, you know, the plastic lenses uh, on a disposable. Um, yeah, I'd like those to get to a types of Kodak lenses. one shot over a Holga. It, it, say that again. I'm sorry. Oh, I'd like to get to the point where it's like um, we could get to the as good as a Kodak disposable camera rather than Holga uh -huh. lens, but um, that would make me really happy. I think we're not too far off from that, and uh, right. I think once we get there, uh, very very quickly, people will get way farther. Yes, so, right. It's so the ability to manufacture a single element, and once that. Once that is there, right, the, the rest of it is, I don't want to say trivial, but um, it's, it's that first step that that's going to be difficult. And, and I think that there, if you go far enough back in, in the technology, you could find a level of quality that is attainable in a home workshop using fairly simple processes. There are a lot of glass workers around here, and I've talked about that before, but it's that part isn't actually as exotic as people think it is. Uh, it depends on how high a quality you're looking for. But it also brings me to, to another uh, approach for this. Um, there was a, there's a, the most recent episode of Classic Lenses podcast has an interview right. with a woman and I'll have to look it up. Um, but they're talking about uh, this, this, uh, this photographer rearranges lens elements or changes their orientation or relationship within within a, a multi-element lens to get special effects. And she's got ingenious ways of doing that. But what occurred to me listening to this is uh, that there are a lot of lenses, parts, elements that you can just buy in a catalog. And, and Graham's talked about this. They're not expensive. And you can also take apart old lenses and, and borrow the elements from them and rearrange them. So that's another approach of kind of Frankenstein approach to this. Um, and with that in mind, I need more information. I need, need more knowledge. And I also stumbled on the same day, um, the, the person who does Panamicron, uh, Oscar, don't remember his uh, last name. Oh, uh, the, yeah. Uh, and the woman who was on classic lenses is Isabella Curtis, right? C-U-R-D-E-S. Yeah. And if you go to classic uh, classic lenses podcast, 
um, dot com, you can get um, a link to her site. Right. And that she does beautiful work. Uh, and a lot of it is in, is based on this tinkering. It's it's a DIY approach where you, you change lenses, characteristics uh, and uh, among other many things that she does. And but anyway, the Panamicron fellow uh, was talking about a book which he uses used to develop building things like his own viewfinders from off the shelf parts. Um, and the, this is a book that's supposed to be very, very practical for if you want to build or design or modify lenses. And it's called Applied Photographic Optics and it's by Sidney F. Ray. I looked it up on uh, the third edition, which includes a lot of stuff on digital, very recent technology is very expensive. It's like a $150 book. But his first edition you can get for twenty or thirty dollars, and and I'm always more interested in kind of the old-fashioned, more primitive side of stuff anyway. So I'm I've, I'm going to be looking into that. I'll be getting that book and reading about this. Um, hopefully, a more practical side of lens uh, manipulation. It, it's meant to be more like for someone who's actually building cameras and lenses rather than uh, just theory or des- you know it's not so much oriented towards design as it is towards getting the work done looks promising all right yeah 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 so ethan you also wanted to talk about uh a a camera that's very much like the homunculus are you there ethan are you there oh we don't have i had it muted while i was uh oh okay okay um there we go yeah so it's it's very much like the mamiya press cameras and in some ways it it appeals to me even more but some ways it really uh let me down um so i moved uh, a couple of weeks ago and had to clear out my old garage and it's actually in a much better workshop we'll talk about that some other time but um i found like a 30 or 40 pound box of broken cameras uh that was not in my normal camera graveyard it was just buried under a bunch of stuff in my garage And it's now buried under a bunch of stuff in my new garage, but uh, I went through (laughs) it and I found this camera and I immediately thought like, oh, this is a Nick Lyle camera. I pulled it out uh, to tinker with it before everything else. And it's a Graflex XL, um, which is a rangefinder Graflex press camera. Um, And it shoots six by seven. It's also that weird sort of uh, portrait format body. Not that it shoots in portrait format, but it's very tall and thin um and it takes graflex backs and it has uh you know helical focusing and the lenses that were available for it are really good um the one on mine has a 80 millimeter 2.8 planar which is one of my favorite lenses of all time i use one on a hasselblad um and this one was totally jammed and so i did a little internet research um and apparently you know Almost the entire camera is built out of metal. It's very well built. The optics are great, both in the rangefinder and the um, and the lenses available for it. But um, there's one piece, which is the outer focusing helical that that you turn to focus, and that's made out of plastic. And I think um, so. I was actually talking to Oscar Oison about this. Um, he thinks that they made it out of plastic so that if anything broke, it would be that upon dropping it or whatever, and it could be easily and cheaply replaced. I say bollocks. I I think <laughs> uh, uh, 
that that part was probably designed to be in metal and they figured out that they could make it in plastic cheaper and quicker um, because you know when I like they were not dumb they made a really really nice camera um, but the one plastic part was not designed like a plastic part it was designed like a metal part and so there you go. Yeah. it has these three little tiny plastic tabs that ride in the helical groove of the lens focusing assembly and when you turn this lens um, it pushes the the helical in and out just like the camera dactyl og um, but when i designed the og i have these huge plastic tabs that ride in and they're spiral shaped and so they match the uh the helix on on the very front of the lens board and this one just has three tiny little plastic tabs that are flat um and apparently, you know, on the internet, I haven't had very many of these. I've bought and sold a few, but um, this is like, especially now, you know, 40 or 50 years later, they're all broken. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's annoying because while it's a relatively simple and cheap part to replace, one, they don't make them, two, uh, mm -hmm. the way the helix comes out, right, so it's interchangeable lenses, but you have to be able to focus as close as possible to dismount the lens. And when one of those tabs breaks and jams in there, you can't. And so I had to disassemble the entire camera, which was an interesting uh, good time uh, that I had while I was printing some other camera parts and waiting for those prints. But, um, you know, I took it apart and two of the tabs were broken. And the one tab that was there had been clearly glued by whatever previous owner had it before me, you know, I had never been inside the camera. And so, you know, it was just like a really good example of like, we are only as strong as our weakest member type of thing. Um, whereas you have this right. whole camera beautifully machined made out of really high quality, you know, mostly metals and some glass, but they have this one really important part that's just made out of, plastic which it could be made out of plastic and made fine just you know they would have need to uh, they would have needed to design it in a way such that the plastic was four or five times as thick right like nobody's going to be able to break the tabs on the camera dactyl og uh, but i think they probably maybe even made a couple metal ones in in prototypes or before this camera and so you know originally i was thinking i would just take this lens off and maybe figure out a way to mount it to the homunculus, which I may do because I love that lens. But, um, you know, it's three plastic tabs on a part that I can produce and everybody is having problems with this camera who has it. It's not a super popular or, you know, it wasn't produced for very long or in huge quantities, but it's otherwise very nice. And so I might just, you know, suck it up and make a repair part for that camera that, you know, people can buy for a reasonable amount of money to fix, uh, to fix their Graflex XLs. So that, that's sort ah. of an interesting offshoot that I was. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And maybe there's a slightly more durable plastic now available or something, you know, that, that would work better. Yeah. So one of the annoying things about the, the repair part is because I did not design the rest of the camera and cannot design the rest of the camera. You know, there's a set size slot that this tab 
goes into, which is much smaller than I would have made it knowing that it's going to be plastic. And so I think I might be able to squeeze in a slightly bigger tab that is helixed in itself rather than just a flat tab, much like the OG. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to do could you, could, could you cut just that part out of metal and then radius it so it didn't, didn't score the plastic parts it made it with, like maybe aluminum or? I mean, I could absolutely make this thing on a mill, but I would have to charge... I don't know, five thousand dollars. No, no, but it, you, it's not something simple enough to just cut. Uh, no, so they're integral flat. to the focusing ring, yeah, and so right. yeah, maybe maybe I could come up with a new focusing ring that has inserts for some standard, you know, metal or laser cut uh, or water jet cut part. But um, I think what I'm going to do is just uh, figure out a way to print it out of uh, PLA or PETG, and um, you know, if they're reasonably inexpensive, you know, I, I can sell a, a bunch of them as wear parts. The other mm -hmm. thing, is like, um, I don't know if I can make a plastic that's much stronger than the original, but um, the original is now, let's say, 50 years old or more, and plastic gets brittle uh, over that time period. And I'm sure that's why everybody has that problem with that mm -hmm. can. Right. Which I don't, you know, I don't know that mine will last 50 years, right? The oldest camerodactyls out there are about a year and a half, two years old. So far, they're holding up all right. But um, yeah, I think they're they're maybe 10, 20 year cameras, not a hundred year camera. Sure. I do want to point out that there is a planar for the Mamiya Press. It's a 2.8, but it's a it, but it's a hundred millimeter, and it would be fun to have an 80. I like your other idea too, though, which is to make a you know a body with a helical that you can just drop the lens into. Does the, does the lens bring a shutter with it when you remove it from the helical? Yes. Yeah. yeah that that sounds pretty appealing. Yeah, that was uh, my original thought. So it has like the um, the inner part of the helical, and then it's got a you know like a Graflex uh, large format style shutter, and then the lens cells mounted to that. I was thinking about just making like either an adapter or a separate homunculus body that might take those lenses. And that was mm -hmm. all that was all inspired by Nick Lyle uh, yesterday as I was going through my camera. <laughs> um, but, you know, I got to the point where I was like, oh, I've disassembled this camera. It's really well built otherwise. And it just needs these two little plastic tabs, which I could produce in a couple of days. Uh, yeah. Well, a good rangefinder medium format cameras are expensive and, uh, you know, in limited numbers. So finding another way to, yeah, I think, to, to make some available is a good idea. Yeah, I think this camera is worth like uh, $500 to $1,000. You know, it's in pretty good shape, in which case I would probably you know, fix it and offload it and then continue selling repair parts. But maybe I will just sell the camera body uh, fixed with a new repair part and then take the lens for myself and make some sort of Frankenstein thing around it. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of people have, you know, everything but the, the working uh, vehicle. So, yes, it's a good idea.
Okay. Uh, do either of you guys have any books that you wanted to talk about? Well, I already mentioned uh, Sidney F. Ray's book, Applied Photographic Optics, which I haven't got yet, but it looks very promising. And uh, I do. Um, yeah. And did you have a book, Ethan? Uh, no, I, I actually can't read books these days. I sit down to try and read a book and then I'm off Googling something about transistors on my phone. Um, but this, this book on optics, optics sounds pretty interesting. I will probably finagle myself a copy. Good. All right. Uh, yeah. And I was just looking at it right now. Uh, 34 bucks new, 32 bucks used um, yeah, for, for, for first the, edition yeah. for the first edition. And, um, yeah, I love that. I love the cover design. Uh, for those of you who go, I'll put it in the show notes. Make sure we have it in the show notes. Well, um, well I, do, I do have a shout out. Um, yeah. Th- that's kind of connected to things we were talking about earlier on the uh, Homemade Camera Podcast Flickr uh, group. There is a post by Francois Laverdure, who calls himself Flavor D on that mm-hmm. forum. And he he's was just mentioning do-it-yourself camera kits as something he really likes where instead of you know building a camera uh for somebody else you just send them all the parts and they have to put it together themselves and there were a few i think some russian ones the uh constructor i don't know if that was a lomo yeah that's a that's a lomo i have yeah anyway there were there were there were things like that but it's something that i think is really suited to to our homemade camera efforts that and it kind of reminds me of the idea I had that of team builds where, you know, everybody makes parts. But I think that's a really appealing approach that if you design something to be easy to assemble, it could conceivably be a way to keep costs down and also kind of fun. You know, the, you get to put right. together the parts yourself. It's interesting. And, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Well, it also opens up the possibility of like kind of you get it's sort of the lego idea you know you have the first basic parts and then you can have more and more parts to keep making it do more and more things yeah oh yeah yeah so it's interesting you built bring that up um and particularly around easy to assemble um so this panoramic camera i am um strongly considering releasing it as both an assembled camera and a do-it-yourself put it together camera for half price and the reason is it is not easy to assemble it's going to take like five or six hours of assembly time and i would much rather get more of them out in the world and not make money as a mechanic you know uh, but more as a, a producer and let other people do the assembly work but um i'm also always worried when i think about selling kits um that Uh, If it's five or six hours of, you know, uh, you know, thoughtful and precise assembly that, you know, you might get a lot of disappointed people who can't quite assemble it. And so. So that's that's where design comes in. But, you know, there there used to be a huge thriving industry in model building where people would spend hundreds of hours assembling completely useless battleships out of tiny plastic parts. So I don't think. And I think that that type of analog process is sort of back in style and back in fashion. And I, I don't think something that takes five or six hours to build and then actually is a functioning, useful object. I don't think that's an obstacle at all. I think that could be a, even attractive um, to people as something fun to do. And it comes I, down to it, not it, making it too hard. You have to 
think the design through so that the challenges won't be, you know, like won't require extreme like Olympic level motor skills or anything like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, and, and part of the deal is it's that's not going to be for everybody. And there's going to be a different, uh, y- you know, um, but then you'll have a cottage it, industry of people who buy the kits and assemble them for other people for pay. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, absolutely. Um, there have been uh, different Kickstarters that have, um, if I remember the, uh, what was the monorail camera that was out about the same time as the uh, the standard yeah 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 uh, I think that okay. they had um, a, an unassembled unassembled version as an optional um, I mean I with, a view, with a view that. camera you're almost it's almost a kit camera even an right. off the shelf one because you've, right. <laughs> you're, you're reconfiguring it as you work with it and, right uh, yeah this right. This new camera, it would uh, require a lot of like gear polishing, and um, yeah, it's 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 going to be painful, uh, <laughs> painful assembly. Um, so, yeah. Fun to do the first couple of prototypes. I just don't want to assemble a hundred of them. But you know, right. maybe maybe I will. Uh, I'm I'm strongly leaning towards you know just doing a half price version for people willing to you know spend a day and get it together. I used to build model airplanes and right there you go. The first one, you know, that came, my dad and I, I was a kid, just, we were totally stunned by like what poor workmanship this was and how much we actually had to do to get the parts to fit. And then by the, you know, right. the second, third, we realized, no, that's actually, you're expected to do some, you know, filing and fitting. Otherwise the kit wouldn't be a kit. It's not slapped together. Right. 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 Well, I, I don't know. I think to me, this is extremely appealing. And I think that you could f- probably find kind of a sweet spot where you're w- somewhere between building a camera and assembling a kit where there's some positive side to it. Uh, and one thing that always that I'm always harping on about is to put in some adjustment. And so, for instance, if I w- if I was to ask you to make me a kit, what I would want would be a kit to build a rangefinder medium format camera and one of the first things I would want is n- hardly any cameras have this, but why not make it really easy to adjust and calibrate the rangefinder? Why should that be like some obscure little screw somewhere buried, you know, inside right. the camera? Why can't that just be out on the surface and have uh, some uh, a- uh, visual aids <laughs> to make it easy to do? <laughs> there's a real reason for the adjustment being buried inside the camera is because they're always connected to very precise linkages and if they're you know at least they need to be covered by an access panel otherwise you would constantly be bumping your rangefinder well, access panel is fine i mean that the film is delicate and it has an access panel over it so why not the rangefinder i think most rangefinders have access <laughs> panels, right my leica has an access panel my canon has an access panel all right maybe maybe i just have all the wrong cameras but the ones <laughs> i have are really a pain in the neck it, it's not simple and it should be. I don't know. I um I adjusted some rangefinders for uh let me see it was a Roly XF35 and Voigtlander VF135. Uh, I have uh, brought some of uh, you know seriously brought some of those back from from death uh, doing that. Um, 
I think there were three of them that I worked on back in the day. I don't have any right now. Um, but uh, when I went to my uh, Cosina Voigtlander uh, R3M, yeah. Yeah. Uh, those are hard. I, I royally, I, I, uh, I effed it up to the point where I had to send it off. Right. So, uh, so I, I, I could see both ends of that. Um, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's, uh, I guess, uh, uh, that's an argument for both sides. Well, uh, the old, the original graphics story. were all an adjustment and you had to adjust yeah. the camera every time you changed the lens. And, then they went to one where you just swapped in a cam lever, and that was supposed yeah. to make things easy. But, of course, now if you're trying to re- restore one of those cameras, you can't find the right lever to go with the lens. And, you know, it's it's just a big right. pain in the neck. Yeah. Right. All right. So um, any other shout-outs? Uh, Ethan, you have one? I'm going to have to get better at keeping a list of these. Okay. Okay. I am going to shout out uh, to Andrew Bartram of uh, both the large format, uh, large format photography podcast, the LFPP and uh, the Lensless uh, podcast. Um, And part of it is uh, just his constant talk about the darkroom really um, over the last year has really gotten me into the darkroom. And, you know, uh, plus uh, with Nick's um uh sending me in a larger that certainly helped uh and that's what i'm going to be doing after the time that we do the you know we're, we're done recording that's where i'm heading so i just wanted to say uh constantly positive about that um uh that has helped me out quite a bit uh i um and i'm struggling with the concept of printing in stops uh and i have a uh a, a, a a printing stop time calculator on my iPad that uh, that I'm working with. But um, the big thing that I have to remember is everything dries darker. <laughs> so, so yeah. So anyway, I've had one day working in there and today's going to be my second day working in there. So I'm excited about that. And that, that sounds oh, good. Go ahead. No, it's right. Okay. And Ethan, this is something you're going to have to um, uh, memorize eventually. But we want to thank Robbie of Soundtrap Studios for composing and allowing us to use the music that we use for the show. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie.